Finding love abroad is arguably one of the most romantic concepts. A young man relocating to another country meets a beautiful local woman and sparks fly. They marry, have babies, and live happily ever after. It can be a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, the case we are looking at today is not that. Let's talk true crime. and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This is a case I stumbled upon last year. I was going to cover it then, but I decided I needed more time to digest it. I will reserve my concerns until the end of until the end of this case, and then I'm gonna break down what keeps me up at night about it. I'm also going to try my best to be unbiased as I don't know a lot about the scene we're going to be talking about. So let's start at the beginning. Stephen Davis was born March 27, 1970 in England to his mother, Margaret, and his father, Joe. Margaret and Joe eventually had two more children, making Stephen the older brother to two sisters. He came from a humble beginning, but his mother and father, they worked very hard to provide the best life for their three children. And by 1979, they got married and they could afford a bigger home for their growing family. As Stephen got older, he found great interest in computers and seemed to have a natural knack for programming. All was good in the family until a sudden and brutal disaster occurred two days before Stephen's 14th birthday. His father, Joe, had been out driving his motorcycle when he got into a bad accident. This accident caused significant brain damage, and Joe, he was kept alive on life support for a while after the accident, and then two years later, Joe actually died from his injuries, It just absolutely devastating the entire family. Stephen, he, after this, he took on a lot of responsibility after his father died. I mean, he wanted to care for his mother and his sisters, and he became the man of the house, I guess. He became the man of the family that, that everyone could count on, and he stepped into this role pridefully. When Stephen was around 17 or 18 years old, his mother met a man named Alan. She knew Alan as he he had worked with her her late husband Joe before the accident. So she was she you know she already kind of knew him. And then I guess they went out and they were like, hey, you know, there might be something here. And there was Alan. He's very polite. He's soft spoken. He's sweet. He's a kind hearted man. And and he and Margaret they fell in love. Alan moved in with Margaret and her children. And this was really good. This was really good for everyone. Everyone got along effortlessly. And it sounded to me like Alan was really good with Stephen and his sisters. And there was just a lot of respect happening there. It seemed like Alan never, you know, overstepped his boundaries when it came to parenting. He would follow Margaret's lead. He would do do the parenting style that that Margaret preferred. And Margaret even told Alan, like, hey, I don't want to have any more kids. And he's like, that's fine. These are my kids now. It was just really, really beautiful story, that one. Alan seems like a really amazing guy. With Alan in the picture, Stephen could stop worrying about protecting his family. You know, he didn't have to be the man of the house anymore, and he could focus on his own life and and his future in computers. And if you think about it, he would have started learning programming in like the 90s or something. So he would have been ahead of the game because as we know, that, you know, software designing and computers, it just, everything just really accelerated very quickly from then on. That is, you know, that's how the whole world operates. And he got in, you know, at the ground floor, you could say. So for him to be learning programming in the 90s, that really puts him ahead of the game. Steven, he was very talented at designing computer software. He worked a lot on his computer and he became very good. It did. It seemed like nothing else really interests him aside from his computer. Margaret and Alan say he didn't really go out much. He didn't really care about going out with with 
his friends or getting up to no good. Like he kind of missed those rebellious teenage years and he just wanted to focus on programming. So they thought, okay, well, good for him, I guess. You know, they were like, I I don't know. I guess my son is just perfect. <laughs> in fact, he was offered a job working for a, a computer company in Hong Kong when he was only 21 years old. Yeah, I don't know if you remember what you were doing at 21, but I certainly was not being offered high-paid jobs internationally. So that's incredible. 21 years old, and he's already working for a company in Hong Kong. He was unsure if he wanted to take the high-paying job as it, it did. You know, it took him far away from home. That was very far away from England, far away from Margaret, far away from Alan, his whole family. But Margaret, she encouraged this amazing opportunity, and she did so not only because it, it was a big step up career-wise for him, but also because he he had recently been heartbroken, okay? So he did have a girlfriend, and they broke up. I don't know the details there. It sounds like maybe she broke up with him just before he was offered this job, and apparently this was quite crushing to him, and Margaret could see that he was having a hard time. He gets offered this job. And Margaret says, hey, maybe a change in scenery would help you. Maybe it would help mend your heart. Maybe it'll help you get over this. It could be good for you. And he must have agreed because he ended up accepting the job. Margaret even drove him to the airport and watched his plane carry him away to China. That couldn't have been easy for her. They seemed to have a very close relationship. Once in Hong Kong, Stephen worked as a project manager. Yep, 21-year-old project manager overseeing the installation of computers and software in an airport. I think they were building a new airport, and he got this job as project manager, 21 years old. That's incredible. It wasn't unheard of that he would work up to like 20 hours a day, though. So he was putting in the hours. He was working hard. Can't imagine that that... It's an easy job, so I guess we can see why the the pay was so high. I think it was something like three times more than the salary he was getting in England for whatever company he was working for there. Stephen did get time off though, okay? So he did get weekends off, maybe some odd days here and there, maybe some holidays. So he did get some time off, and that's when he and his friends would go out and party. Okay, so now we're kind of seeing this... You know, he didn't do this when he was younger, but now he he seems to enjoy going out and partying, whether that meant going to the bars in the city, doing a boat cruise, or or taking a trip to the Philippines. He didn't just party in his time off, though. He also learned how to fly not like a plane, though. It's these interesting flying contraptions. The best way I can describe them is if you've ever seen the movie fly away home it is it's a pretty old movie it's from the 90s it's they they have one in the movie it's like a, it's got a small engine and wings it's got a it's it's like a go-kart it's like a flying go-kart i guess and they look pretty cool so he was learning how to fly these he got into that and he even joined a flying club this flying club was in the philippines so it was a very short flight to get there from from hong kong he could, you know what it was so close he could probably go in the morning get there fly his flyaway home machine and then return back to hong kong that night like that's how close it was it was a couple hour hour flight the city that he joined this flying club in in the philippines is called angelis and also there is a lot of beautiful young women. And they there is an occupation there, and it is called being a bar girl. So this is where my knowledge is limited. I don't know much about this scene. And apparently these women wanted to party with Stephen and his friends. And I did hear multiple times when... I even like Google imaged Angelise and bar girls and then I found some YouTube videos and a lot of them were saying that this city is best known for buying sex work services in the Philippines. There are these bars there and in these bars are women and, and to me, I know I want to stay unbiased, but this, this just gets kind of sad to me. It's not only women working in these bars, it's also children little girls as young as 12 years old and 
you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them had younger. These girls and women, they work in the bar and they dance. They can also be bought for sex. And if someone likes one of the girls or women a lot, they can actually pay the bar owner somewhere around 600 US dollars to essentially buy the girls freedom and take them with them to marry them or I guess whatever they please, which that's that doesn't really sound like buying someone's freedom to me. It just sounds like buying them almost like human trafficking. To me, this sounds a lot like human trafficking, but the women who work there, unfortunately, they don't have any other opportunities to make money to support their families. And it is just so sad, this kind of like trap that they're in these women are only making about i saw a dollar a night to work in the bar but they can make up to ten dollars a night if they offer sexual services and from what i gathered it it seems compulsory that they do offer these extra services as the bar owner does take a cut of what they make so i'm i could imagine they're pressured into doing this and a horrifying reality of all of this is that girls get paid more for sexual services if they're young virgins. Some of the bar girls dream of meeting a Western man, an American man, an English man who falls in love with them and takes them away from the bar life to support them. And one of these girls who wish this is named Evelyn Bull, B-O-H-O-L, Bull. Evelyn, she worked at one of these bars from the age of 13 And that is where she met Stephen Davis. Now, when she met Stephen, she was around 16 or 17 years old when they first met. And I believe Stephen was around 26, 27. Stephen did buy Evelyn's sexual services uh, and then wanted to start a life with her. So this happened very quickly. Stephen then paid the bar owner over $600 for Evelyn, meaning he bought her out of her job position at that bar. So she could leave the bar now. She didn't have to go back. And he saw it as rescuing her from a horrible a horrible life. And he, he even told his mother this, like, Mom, I rescued her. And she claimed to love Stephen and wanted to marry him and, and have his babies. And, and like I said, this was just a tornado. This was moving so quickly. A bit about Evelyn, she did grow up in the Philippines. She grew up on an island called Daram Samar. I could be butchering that pronunciation. Uh, she, She grew up poor, to say the least, absolutely no comforts. And when I say that, I mean such things as like plumbing, like the island did not have infrastructure. Nothing came easy for her or her family. She never even got an opportunity to go to school. She knew that if she could get to Angelise, that she could work in the bars and, and meet a Western man and maybe secure herself and her family a fruitful future. This is even what she told told her mother. This was her plan. This was her best strategy to to lift her and her family out of poverty. So at the age of 13, I mean, her mom was crying. Her mom was like, I don't want you to go. And Evelyn was like, mom, I have to go. So she traveled alone at the age of 13 for two days to get to these bar jobs in Angeles. And she started working at the bar. She told her sister she was forced into the sex trade. And the way she was coping was by using drugs. I mean, perhaps... Because she's a young girl on this island, maybe she maybe she didn't know fully why these bar girls make so much money and meet so many men. Perhaps she just thought she would be working in a bar and didn't understand what the reality was. But that's where she found herself. Then one night, her wish came true. She met Stephen Davis, and he wanted to marry her. He fell in love. March 20th, 1997, Stephen and Evelyn get married. Suddenly, Evelyn has everything she could ever dreamed about, including a baby on the way. That's right. They were starting a family. After their first baby was born, a couple years later, they have another baby. So they have two kids now. And I'm pretty sure they were still living in Hong Kong up until this point, but then they move back to the Philippines. So Stephen and Evelyn and their two kids, they move from Hong Kong to Angelise, uh, where he continues working a high-paying job in the software world. Okay, so he's supporting his new family. They have a house. They have 
seemingly a, a great relationship with two kids. People did have concerns with the choices Stephen was making, including a colleague uh, and Stephen's parents, but there was nothing they could do. So they just supported him in this. Margaret, Stephen's mother noticed when she visited that Stephen seemed to love Evelyn maybe more than Evelyn loved him. And she gauged this by the way that they acted around each other. I guess Stephen was more affectionate towards Evelyn and Evelyn seemed more distant than you you would you would expect a wife to be with her husband if they were still in love. By this time, Evelyn was given an allowance of twelve hundred U.S. dollars a month from Stephen, uh, not to mention a beautiful home and n- no shortage of comforts. Just to put things into perspective here, Evelyn's monthly allowance that Stephen gave her—that was what most people in the Philippines would make in a year, working hard every day. Evelyn didn't seem too interested in being a housewife, though. Uh, she didn't want to clean the house. She didn't really like to cook. She didn't have really much interest in in raising her own children. And that's just what I heard and read, you know, but I mean, that's kind of that's kind of brutal to say about somebody, but that's what I heard. She was a stay at home mother, but she didn't want to do the stay at home mother things. And she was making a year's wage every month. So with that being said, I mean, maybe she was depressed. Okay, like she had been forced into sex work from the age of 13. She married by 17, pregnant by 18. I mean, a little therapy might have gone a long way for her. Honestly, I I feel for her situation. Her entire life has just been doing what she needs to do to survive. And Stephen, he didn't seem to mind at first. You know, he hired maids to clean the house. He's like, look, wife, I love you. You don't seem to be into cleaning. Why don't I hire somebody to clean? So he was kind of like, okay, hey, let's work together on this. Let me let me help you. And he made sure Evelyn and his children, they were all taken care of. You know, he hired these maids. In fact, his mother noticed that Evelyn wasn't maintaining the home and she said something to him about it and he said like he defended evelyn he's like she's my princess mom she doesn't need to do anything so apparently that was what he called her a lot was was his princess or his queen and he just loved her and put her on this pedestal and was like i got you Perhaps Stephen understood better than most that Evelyn had a lot to deal with, uh, and he re- he really tried to give her everything, not just her, but but her family. He gave money to Evelyn's mother and father, who were still living on that island. He gave them so much money they could afford things to benefit them, such as a boat, which is a really good idea because a boat would mean work, it would mean food, it would mean a livelihood. That would help her family a lot, I, I assume. He even paid for them to come visit so they could spend time with their granddaughter and their grandchildren. As time went on, it started to seem like Evelyn might be having an affair, though. So this is where things take a a turn. Stephen's mother said when they would visit Stephen and Evelyn, it always seemed like Evelyn was being distant texting on her phone, talking on her phone, giggling, laughing, but like away from them, almost like she was keeping a secret. And whatever secret she was keeping made her very giddy and and very happy. Alan, Stephen's stepdad, he he called it. Okay, he called it. He was like, I think Evelyn has a boyfriend. And Margaret was like, no, no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. It's fine. But Evelyn I mean, she was acting pretty pretty cold towards Stephen, so it, it it was looking like their relationship maybe was deteriorating at, at this point. Stephen had been happy to give Evelyn money to stay home and do whatever she wanted, but I mean, th- this is when things start to change. It's all this, I think, this affair. When this happened, things started to change. He He stopped being happy about giving Evelyn money and letting her do what she wants, not only because of this affair, but also he realized the school he thought his daughter was enrolled in, that he was paying a lot of money to, they didn't, they didn't know his daughter. They didn't know her at all. 
and he discovered that the tuition money was never made it to them and his daughter was never enrolled and he was like in a twilight zone he's like wait a minute i've paid for this school my daughter's been coming here and like how do, how do you not know my daughter and they were like sorry sir you're a stranger your daughter's a stranger we haven't received a penny from you and he's like well i gave my wife money to pay the tuition and then i'm sure he trailed off and like looked into space and then put the pieces together so where did that where did that money go then? It turns out Evelyn took the money. Not only that, but she pawned her wedding ring and was allegedly giving the money to her boyfriend. And he allegedly bought a I don't know if I have to say allegedly there because this I I don't know. Like I'm just going to say allegedly and he bought motorbike with that money and he would have had probably more money than that. So he he was living Pretty good, I would assume. We know about the pawning of the wedding ring because Stephen found a receipt. Yeah, he found a receipt that was like one diamond wedding ring, X amount of dollars paid to Evelyn, okay? And he he told his mother about this. Like, this was pretty concrete evidence that she had pawned the ring. I mean, A, where's your ring, girl? Like, you can't even show him you have a ring on your finger anymore. B, he found the receipt. That is legit. But guess what? He doesn't know where that money is. So this is when he seemed to be at his wits end. Now he was feeling extremely taken advantage of. Now, at first, there was just suspicion that Evelyn had a boyfriend. But it all came out when she confessed. That's right. She told her sister. So I don't know. Her sister was over there doing something, maybe helping out with with chores maybe watching the kids i don't know but her and evelyn started talking and evelyn was like oh yeah that is true because her sister asked her her sister was like i've heard that you're having an affair with somebody and she said i guess she said yeah i am so her sister knew and the man she was having an affair with was a local man named arnold adore evelyn to this day claimed she was not having an affair with this man but when she says it, I saw her say this in a documentary, she, they ask her and she kind of grins and kind of smiles while denying it. But she, she's almost giddy when she, she's like, no, no, I didn't have an affair. I don't know that guy or something like that. And I'm like, ooh, that looked, ooh, that looked kind of suspicious. Stephen knows that his wife is being sneaky and distant and that money is going missing and that she pawned her wedding ring and Evelyn lied about their daughter being enrolled in school. He knows all of this. Okay, this is a lot. It's a lot of compounding things. Uh, he and Evelyn, they had stopped being intimate by this point in their marriage. So things were getting pretty bad by this time. Stephen's work colleague admits that Stephen started going out and partying again and having sexual hookups. And I could imagine this was those transactional sexual hookups with the bar girls. And his 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 coworker said something that was kind of odd to me. He was like, no, Stephen didn't have an affair. No, but he was having one night stands. And I'm like, what do you call an affair? What do you call cheating? Anyways, I don't know. Again, cultural differences, I don't know. So maybe maybe to this expat community or the men who purchase these services, paying for sex or having these sexual transactions, that doesn't count as an affair because there's no emotions. It's And I've heard people describe it as pay-to-play. So you're you're buying a service. It's it's not emotional. But I mean, that's how Stephen met Evelyn. So clearly he is capable of of catching feelings and and having emotions for for the women that he has these sexual transactions with. So now they've got a bit of a mess on their hands there. I mean, uh, Evelyn's got a boyfriend. Stephen is is paying to have sex with other women or he's having sex with other women. I, I can't confirm if he was paying for it. Um, it. It was just all bad, just all around bad. They seem to be going in their separate directions, but they're still married. They still have kids together. They're still living in the same same house. There was actually footage from Steven's video camera, and apparently this was 
the last time he had used his camera. This was, was the last thing that he filmed, I guess. And it was him out partying. I believe he was at his colleague's house who has a pool. And the footage is of a bunch. I mean, a lot of young Filipino women in and, in and around the swimming pool and Stephen films as they play a very suggestive game. And this game is where the women need to eat slash drink, I guess, this shot that has whipped cream on it. And I don't think they can use their hands. I mean, the game wasn't ever explained in the video, but this is just what I'm gathering. So the shots are lined up on the ground by the pool and then the women have to get down on the ground and using their mouth and tongue they have to lick around this glass lick the whipped cream off and then when it comes time to drink the shot they cup their mouth around the shot and then tip their heads back and if if you were to watch it you would uh i think you would agree with me it's very suggestive very erotic yeah, and that was the so that's the last video he had on his on his video camera. So he was going out and doing stuff like that while Evelyn was apparently with her boyfriend. At home, however, he was probably feeling pretty taken ad advantage of and he tells Evelyn, "All right, no more allowance, no more money. Actually, I want my money back uh, that you took." But that threat seemed unlikely. He knew he wasn't going to get his money back. So he offered her two more options. He said, hey, look, get a job or go to college. Well, Evelyn probably laughed and showed no interest in any of that. So then Stephen said, okay, fine. Then if you don't progress in any of those things, if you don't look for a job, if you don't get a job, if you don't go to college, then maybe we should get a divorce. Yep. He drops the divorce word on her. If I can just be honest here for a moment, you know, I really wanted to, I didn't, I wanted to remain unbiased, but I, I just have to say this. I think Stephen was pretty naive going into this marriage or he knew fully what he was doing and did it anyways. I'm not sure which one. I mean, he married a girl who was still a teenager that he bought for the night for sex and then bought again from the bar owner to take, which to me, it just has these human trafficking vibes to it. She was also 17 when they married, remember, and he was 27. So I don't know how he thought this was gonna gonna play out. When you lay it out like that, it really looks like he was taking advantage of a young girl who was desperate. And I think that if he truly wanted to save her from from the bar and sex work, like he claimed, because those were his words, he told his mom, mom, I saved her, okay, or I rescued her, okay? So he's feeling like a, a savior at this point. But to me, to save someone for that situation, I mean, why not pay for them to be able to, to leave that bar and never have to come back, first of all, then pay for their education pay for their own apartment, help them get a job, maybe even something in the in the tech world even. He seemed to be pretty well connected to that. He could have tutored her. He could have opened up career pathways for her. To me, that would be more so rescuing somebody from that life, not marrying them, not having sex with them, but more so sponsoring her so she can build a better life for herself. To me, that makes sense. But I don't know, that's that's just my opinion on the matter. That's just how I feel. I think there are many ethical lines being crossed. And I can see that Evelyn was searching for a better life. And by marrying Stephen and having his children, she thought she could have a better life. But then probably realized, or maybe never did, love him. She claims she did, though, okay? She still says she did love Stephen. She possibly... Maybe she loved the idea of not living in poverty anymore. Not, you know, maybe she loved the idea of being able to support her family. Maybe she loved the idea of not being owned by a bar and a boss who forces her into sex work. Okay. So she did what she had to do to get out of that situation. I get that. I, and it is, it is heartbreaking. It breaks my heart. There are so many elements of this whole entire case where I'm just like, this whole thing is heartbreaking. And I can't help but feel 
just a little bit that maybe, you know, they took advantage of each other. They took advantage of each other's situations. And now it was all unraveling. So now Stephen and Evelyn, they're at a crossroads. The five-year marriage is breaking down and Evelyn is probably feeling desperate again. Her endless supply of money is drying up and she has no way of making money. So you know she was probably thinking, what am I going to do? I can't, I can't go back. I can't go back to the bars. That was probably the last thing she ever wanted to do. I will say Stephen did offer her the means to get an education. So he, he did offer her that, which, I mean, that could have possibly led to a job, but she did turn it down. I do acknowledge that. But that was after they had married and had kids and everything started to kind of go sideways. I think that would have been a really good option to to start with before marriage, before sex, before any of that. During this turbulent time, Stephen's parents came to visit them again, and I'm sure they noticed the tension during that visit. When they were leaving, Stephen and Evelyn, they dropped them off at the airport like they always do. Uh, When they were saying goodbye, Evelyn made a point of them to hug and kiss and say goodbye to Stephen, more so. I think she was like, say goodbye to your son and like, and saying stuff she didn't usually say. And that, it did catch Margaret's attention. Like later she recalls that. She's like, oh. And Evelyn, she also asked Margaret for her phone number, which was, that was very unusual as her and Evelyn, they mainly communicated through Stephen. They didn't have each other's number. But before they left, Evelyn was like, hey, mom. She called Margaret her mom. Can you, can I have your phone number? And Margaret's like, yeah, okay. Margaret and Alan said their goodbyes and flew off back to England. July 17th, 2002, Manila, Philippines three hours from Angelis. Stephen and his colleague Mike, they were at their work apartment. Apparently, they did a lot of work in Manila, so just for convenience purposes, they had rented an apartment, which they called their business apartment. They had been working late, I think around 10 or 10.30, something like that. They finished work for the night. They went back to their apartment. Mike left, went and picked up his girlfriend from the airport who had flown in, They got back to their apartment. They went to bed. Mike and his girlfriend, they were sleeping. This is around 2 a.m. And one of them noticed a sound and a light outside the door, like flashlights moving around, like lights flickering around. Mike thought, like, what he thought, what the fuck is Steven doing? Like, that was his first thought. He was like, why is Steven being weird? Like, what is he doing out there? So he, like, yells out to Stephen. He yells out, like, what are, you, what are you doing tonight? Or what's going on, Stephen? And to his surprise, it was not Stephen. And three men came running into his room with guns. They took Mike's girlfriend, who was in the bed with him. They shoved her in the bathroom. They somehow locked her in here. In there, they looked at Mike. And then the one man said in Filipino, is this him? And someone replied, no. They stole Mike's cell phone, wallet, and keys. They then, they left Mike in his bed being like, what the fuck? I just had guns in my face. And Mike's girlfriend was also unharmed and she was uh, still in the, in the, in the bathroom. Then the three men leave Mike's room and they go to the other bedroom, Stephen's bedroom. Okay. And he was in there sleeping. Mike heard a yell. Then he heard quite a few gunshots. It's actually four gunshots that he heard. And the men then fled the scene. So he can hear him run into Mike's room. He hears a yell and then just boom, 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 boom. And then all these men running away, the three men running away. When Mike went to check on Stephen, he noticed blood, lots of blood and bullet wounds. So he tried to do CPR, but he could tell Stephen was gone. He ran to the neighbors to call for emergency services because remember the men had stolen his his cell phone. And Mike remembers saying, quote, that fucking bitch killed him, unquote. Immediately, Mike suspected this was Evelyn's doing. As well as calling police, Mike also tried to call Evelyn at her home, 
But there was no answer. He tried more than once, and it was like nobody was there. Well, at least nobody was answering. But then around 6 a.m., he finally got a hold of her on her cell phone to give her the bad news. That same morning, a few hours later, around 10 a.m., Mike went to see Evelyn so he he could see her in person. And he said that she showed no signs of distress or sadness that her husband was dead. You know, that's, you know, that that might not be an immediate red flag. She could have been in shock. She could have been dealing with it in in her own way. You know, everybody deals with that kind of stuff differently. So to me, I'm like, yes, that's weird. But, you know, maybe she was in shock. You know, you get really bad news and you're just like, oh, okay, well, I've got to go scrub my bathtub. Like your brain won't let you process it. It's like, hey, you know what? You got a thousand things you got to do before you can even look at this bit of news. You know, I don't know. So for me, I'm like, okay, I need a little bit more if what you're insinuating is what it actually is. Then Mike makes the hardest call of all, and he calls Margaret, Stephen's mother in England. Yep. And he says, Margaret, Stephen's dead. Or he says, Stephen's been killed. And Margaret hears this and she she just had so many questions, but you know, she wasn't getting the answers she needed. She was shocked, confused, devastated. You know, all she knew was that her only son was now not alive anymore. And she was literally a world apart from him. And that's, you know, that's basically all she knew. She and Alan packed their bags and went straight to the Philippines. Okay. They also brought with them a suspicion. And this suspicion was that Evelyn had something to do with this. Margaret saw Evelyn at Stephen's funeral, and she also noted the complete lack of emotion that Evelyn was showing. Another thing about this funeral was that apparently they had a bit of a disagreement on the arrangements. Evelyn wanted Stephen buried in the Philippines, but Margaret wanted to take her son home, back to England to rest. Eventually, Evelyn agreed, but only when Margaret said that she would pay for everything. So Margaret got her wishes and she had Stephen cremated so she could take his ashes back to England with her. Margaret wasn't going to leave without finding the guilty party responsible for her son's death, though. Oh no, she was on a mission. She wanted justice. And she had a good idea of what happened. She just needed to prove it. She needed to put a few more pieces together and she needed to prove this. And that meant she needed to navigate her way through Filipino law and investigating and everything that, you know, she would have no idea how to deal with. So police did investigate at first, but they, they, I don't know if they suspected Evelyn. I'm not sure, but for them, their first thought was it was possibly people who worked with Stephen or it was it was some type of uh, work-related murder. Maybe it had something to do with someone inside of the, the, the software company. But they didn't get any leads after talking to his colleagues, so they dubbed that a dead end. Apparently, they went and they questioned people. Hey, do you know anyone who would want to harm this guy? And everybody said, no, I don't know anybody. That seems to be all the investigating police did in, into this murder. We do know that Stephen was making a lot of money. We also know he was hanging out in those seedy bars again. I feel like there is a lot maybe we don't know, but we do know that when a spouse is murdered, it's not unheard of that their partner is involved. Margaret, she needed answers, okay? So she was like, Let's, let me look at everything. And she also needed help. So she hired a Filipino private investigator, and this guy ends up starting with Evelyn. So I don't know if Margaret was like, hey, I really think it's her, or maybe this private investigator was like, okay, we've got Evelyn was having an affair. Stephen was sleeping with other people. They were in a marriage they no longer wanted to be in. Um, Stephen had just cut Evelyn off of all of her money. That could be motive right there. Anyways, he started with surveying Evelyn's home and he noticed that she had two men that would frequently come and go 
the private eye told Margaret, hey, there's two guys going over to her house and and this is who they are. Whether he got pictures or whatever, they figured out who they were. Who they were. Sorry. And Margaret went and told police. And the two men, they were brought in for questioning. And when they were brought in for questioning, I, I think police took photos of them and they showed Mike because Mike was in the apartment that night and he, he saw those guys standing over him, albeit the bedroom would have been pretty dark and the men were probably wearing hoods or something. But Mike, he took a look at these men that police wanted him to look at and he sure enough said, those are the guys. Those are two out of the three guys who came into that apartment that night and put a gun in my face. I I recognize those guys. One of the men was Evelyn's boyfriend, Arnold, and the other guy was Arnold's co-worker. And just like that, they were arrested and put in jail. Just on Mike saying, yep, I recognize those guys. Boom, they were put in jail. There was no in-depth investigation. There was no proving the guilt otherwise. As far as I know, the guns weren't found, fingerprints with DNA, like none of that. I didn't I didn't see any forensics, nothing. Mind you, I don't know the budget of of well, I you know, I don't know the budget of that police station. I don't know what those investigators are capable of. Maybe they don't have forensics available to them and they just took Mike's word for it. This, however, this happening, this put a huge target on Margaret and Alan's back. People were not happy about the two men being arrested, you know, their family members, people closest to them. They're like, what the fuck? How are you guys arrested? And it must have came about that Margaret was really hammering into this investigation and putting a lot of pressure on police. And this didn't go over well. Things are different in the Philippines. They're not in England anymore. And, you know, they they had to be very careful because they were not flying under the radar anymore. and. Yeah, they had a target on them. Margaret, in fear for her and Alan's life, she makes a plan. She says to Evelyn, hey. And before this, she had been getting the kids, her grandkids' passports organized, okay? She says to Evelyn, hey, why don't you let me watch my grandchildren for the weekend? Why don't you take a load off? Why don't you relax? Evelyn agrees, but only gives her the eldest child, who I would guess would be about four years old at the time. Unfortunately, Margaret couldn't get the other child, the youngest child in her possession, and she had no choice but to to flee with what she had. She had her son in an urn. She had one grandchild, and her and Alan boarded that flight back to England. But let me tell you, she did not stop, okay? Even though she was a world apart, even though she was back in England, she she didn't stop. She did leave the youngest child's passport in the Philippines in hope of convincing Evelyn to hand over the child. And $200 and two months later, the baby arrived in England. So that baby had been staying at Evelyn's mom and dad's in the remote village that Evelyn's from. And somehow Margaret sent someone to offer them money, the $200 for the child, plus she paid for the plane ticket. Yeah, so she went, She sent someone to offer them that money, pay for the plane ticket to send the child back. And it was just a heartbreaking decision as Evelyn's parents, you know, they loved their grandchildren. They were, they, you know, they were so happy to have one of their daughter's child, their grandchild with them. But they knew that there was more opportunity for their grandchildren in England than they would get on that remote area in the Philippines. They knew that the children could be educated. You know, they could get a good education. And from that, they could have a bright, fruitful future. So in the end, Evelyn's parents did part with their grandchild and sent him to England to live with Margaret and Alan. And I mean, that's love, isn't it? Doing doing that Doing something that hurts so much in order for the one you love to benefit. Like that is, that is love. 
So Margaret, she now had both grandchildren in England, but only two people in jail. And she wanted Evelyn and the third person to also get caught. But what is she going to do? She's in England. What can she do from England? So over the next two years, Margaret communicated with police in the Philippines. She wouldn't give this up. She wanted them to question people and gather evidence. And they made her pay for their fuel in order to do it. So I'm going to say it's very heavily underfunded because they were like, oh, we need fuel money if you want us to if you want us to question this person, which I'm like, okay, I'll talk about that later. Margaret and Alan knew Evelyn's aunt. They had met her when they were in the Philippines and they stayed in in touch. They stayed in communication with Evelyn's aunt who was back in the Philippines. And it was from her that she gained the information that really propelled this case forward. Remember the sister? that Evelyn confessed to about the affair with Arnold? Well, this sister has a husband named Robin Budis. The family claims that after the murder, he not only was acting odd, but he disappeared. He went off the radar when police were looking to talk to him about the murder. Why police wanted to talk to him about the murder, I, I never heard why? I never heard what originally pointed them to him, but they they couldn't find him. Apparently, he had gone into hiding. But why? Okay? And I guess Margaret caught wind of this or something happened. She wanted to know about this. Well, according to him, he was the third gunman the night Stephen died. In the documentary I watched, I have linked it in my show notes, it said that Margaret was able to convince the family, or it said persuade the family, to get Robin to come out of hiding and turn himself in. Huh. Convince. Persuade. Persuade, I think, was the word they used. I found that quite interesting, but I'm going to hold my opinion to the end. So Robin, he confesses that the night of the murder around 11 p.m., Arnold and Arnold's co-worker and Evelyn picked him up, didn't say where they were going. He claims he had no idea what was going on. And when they arrived at Stephen and Mike's work apartment in Manila, he was then, I mean, he must have been told then and there what the reason was that he went along with them. And then he jumps in on this plan for whatever reason. He said that it was Arnold who pulled the trigger and shot Stephen four times, leaving him dead, and then they all fled the scene. He said Evelyn was in the car the entire time, not at home like she told police. With this evidence, Arnold and his co-worker, who were already in jail, uh, were then found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, which is 40 years. Again, we're just going off somebody's word here. I didn't hear anything about a gun. I didn't hear anything about any any forensics. So Robin, he ended up getting off with no conviction or no sentencing. He, he didn't get anything. He didn't get any legal implications from being part of this because of the information that he had given. So it's kind of like a the most extreme plea deal I've ever heard of in my life when it comes to a a murder confession. I, this is just so different from the other court cases I've ever talked about or other like legal processes I've ever talked about before. In February of 2004, two years after the murder, Evelyn was arrested and charged with murder because of Robin's evidence that he's telling to police. She pled not guilty in court, but there was many people giving evidence against her, such as her own family, who said they heard her plotting to kill Stephen to get all of his money for herself. Other evidence included the men who broke into Stephen's apartment that night had a key. So there was no forced entry. They had a key, and it was suspected that it was Evelyn who gave them a key to that apartment. Also brought up as an argument in court was that it was Evelyn who directed the men to where Stephen and Michael's business apartment was, because otherwise they wouldn't have known without her direction. Also, Evelyn's neighbor said that she saw Evelyn coming home early that morning because Evelyn's alibi was, hey, I was at home the whole time. They spoke to her neighbors and the neighbor was like, oh, no, I, I saw her come home early that morning. Which, I mean, that means her alibi, it's not holding up. 
So they've got a, a bit of evidence here, circumstantial evidence, and they've got an eyewitness saying they saw her come home. She's pleading not guilty, but let's get to the verdict. So I was surprised by the verdict because, again, it, I mean, unless I'm missing something here, it seemed like a lot of circumstantial evidence. It didn't seem like there was any hard proof here, but I, I don't believe Stephen's parents were there for the entire trial, but for the verdict, Margaret and Alan flew to the Philippines to see this in person. So November 25th, 2004, Evelyn is found guilty beyond reasonable doubt for murder. So even though she didn't pull the trigger, she didn't hold the gun to Stephen's body and and pull that trigger, she still gets a a, a murder charge. Evelyn was sentenced to life in prison, which is 40 years, and she she won't have any chance of of parole, like early parole or early release. There's no way, like when they there's no way. When they say you're doing a life sentence to Evelyn in this situation, they say you're doing 40 hard years. No way of getting out early. When the verdict and sentencing was read to the room, Evelyn was in so much shock. She just sat there, frozen, staring straight ahead for a while. Because there was a, a camera in the courtroom and, it, and it, it caught her her reaction to hearing that she was guilty and she was going to prison for 40 years. And she just turned into this statue. It was like she was staring at a ghost. Like she looked terrified. It was like she was staring at a ghost and she was frozen and she could not move. But also with this like looming air of incredible sadness surrounding her. And I wonder, I I just wonder what was running through her head in that moment. Was she thinking, oh my God, I'm innocent and I'm being charged for a crime I didn't commit on flimsy evidence? Or is she thinking, oh shit, I can't believe my plan didn't work and now I have to go to prison for so long? Or was she thinking, why did I fuck up the good life that I had? You know, I I just I want to know what was going through her head her head in that moment because that would really clarify a lot of a lot of things. Now, after this sentencing, uh, okay, something happens that I have never ever seen happen. Evelyn is brought into custody. She's handcuffed. She's sitting in a room. There's like two police officers standing at the door, kind of mulling around. There's a bunch of people standing outside the door. She's still stunned. She's still stunned. She's sitting in this room. She's just sitting there like a statue. She's wearing these sunglasses. She just looks like she's devoid of, of life and spirit, just gutted. And she's just sitting there staring at a wall when all of a sudden, Margaret and Alan are allowed in this room to face her. Nothing in between them. No plexiglass, not a guard with a gun. It's just this tiny room. Margaret and the woman who's just been found guilty for murdering her son there in the same room. Margaret is literally allowed to put her hands on Evelyn and say whatever she wants. I mean, it doesn't look like police officers are really standing by either. Like, it doesn't look like they're ready to pounce if shit hits the fan. No, I mean, like, even, even the cameraman goes in. There's a cameraman in there. And this room is tiny. I I just I couldn't believe this. And that's what I was thinking. Holy shit, the way that that system works is so far from any legal system I have even a bit of knowledge on cuz I I've, I've never seen that. I've never seen a family member of a murder victim allowed to be in the same room with nothing in between them with the person they believe murdered the one that they love. Not only that, but are allowed to touch them, spit in their face if they want, strangle them if they want, stab them if they want. It's so, it's so dangerous. And you know, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to just take a wild guess and say that Margaret wasn't searched before entering that room. So could she have had any number of weapons hidden on her? Absolutely. Could she have just walked right up to Evelyn, pulled a fucking shank out of her hair, and just went to town before anyone could stop her? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Did she? No, no, not at all. No, Margaret's a, 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 a wonderful, calm woman. But I mean, if your son just gets murdered, you know who's responsible. That can change anybody. Okay, so Margaret, she didn't have any intention of, of physically hurting Evelyn, though. N- not physically, anyways. But mentally, I'd say she went in there with the intent to destroy her. Margaret and Alan, they enter the room with the cameraman not far behind. She walks right up to Evelyn. I'm talking less than a a foot of space between them. And she tells her to stand up. She says, stand up, Evelyn. And Evelyn just sits there staring ahead like a zombie, like like a statue. And Margaret grabs Evelyn's arm and demands she stands up. Get up, Evelyn. And this time she does. And, I mean, this is dangerous for both women. Evelyn's hands, they're not handcuffed behind her back. They're cuffed in front of her. She could easily have hooked those cuffs around Margaret's neck. Her hands were free. She could have put her hands around Margaret's neck. She could have brought her hands up and hit her in the face. Just so many things could have happened here. The two women are now standing face to face. Face to face face centimeters in between their faces and margaret makes evelyn look her in the eyes she's like take those sunglasses off and look me in the eyes and so evelyn's like all right so she takes the sunglasses off and margaret looks evelyn right in the face and she's like your children cry for their mother and then accuses evelyn of of not wanting them she's like and you don't even want them and for the first time evelyn speaks And she's saying that she does want her children. And she also pleads her innocence saying, whatever happened with Stephen, I don't know. You know that, mom. And she continues to plead her innocence, even about the affair she was accused of. And then she breaks down crying. So she's like, you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't have an affair. And she's crying, crying, crying. Margaret grabs Evelyn by the face. I'm talking to one hand on each side, grabs her face, and she says, you're a stupid girl, like literally grabbing her face with both hands. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, where's the where's the guards? Where's the police? Nowhere. That's where they don't even step in. They're like, let's see where this goes. With their faces basically pressed together and with a firm, firm grip on Evelyn's face, Margaret says, he loved you. Your children loved you. I loved you. And look what's happened. And the entire time, Evelyn is breaking down and crying, pleading her innocence. And then Margaret pulls out a book. And this book is made out of pictures that were drawn by Evelyn and Stephen's children. And Margaret shows her the first picture. And she says, this is one of mommy crying. And she also shows her photographs of her children. And she also says, I'll send you pictures of them growing up. (laughs) Whoa, savage. After a few more words and a awkward goodbye, Margaret and Alan, they go back to England and they raise Stephen's children. And Evelyn, she's brought, brought to prison to serve her life sentence. Margaret writes Evelyn a note. This is later on, okay? So she writes Evelyn a note, and in that note, she says, quote, you took my son, and now I have yours and your daughter, unquote. Ooh, ouch. That's, that's, that's something else. You took my son, and now I have yours. Whoa, that's something. That's something. She also says that she will enjoy Evelyn's children. And she shall have some happy times and not think about her. And she also says, I will never forgive you or see you ever again. Yeah. Wow. All I can say is I hope Margaret and the courts and Stephen's friend, I hope they're right. I hope they're right and Evelyn is guilty. Because if she's not, well, that's a horrifying fate. That is a horrifying fate. I mean, the courts say she did it. Did she have motive to do it? I mean, yes. Stephen was saying, hey, I'm going to cut you off financially. He was going out seeing other women. He knew Evelyn had a boyfriend. It was all, you know, what would what would most make sense for Evelyn to keep getting money? 
Well, kill her husband. So, I, I mean, it tracks. It tracks. There was something I found later on while researching this case, and that is, I don't believe Stephen and Evelyn's marriage was legal because, this is what I read in one of my sources, because she was only 17 when they married, and the legal age to marry is 18 in the Philippines. So it's possible they were never legally married. And I mean, that's kind of a, what, like, say she did get away with this, would, you know, would she still benefit from that not being, not being his, his wife? Surely all of his assets and all of his money would have went to his mother, maybe? I'm not sure, but I found that, I found that to be something. Okay, now I'm going to express my concerns about the investigation in the evidence. I'm just going to say I am not, I don't work in law enforcement. I don't work on crime scenes. I'm not a lawyer. I don't work in courts. But I do read a lot about investigations and evidence and forensic and stuff like that. But again, I'm not a professional. I'm just a true crime podcaster. But these are just some of my concerns. Was Evelyn found guilty? Yes. Did she actually do it? The law and many other people say yes. But I still have a few concerns. And these are just my own personal concerns and opinions, which are founded on nothing other than my own suspicions. The first one being that Margaret said she spent a lot of money to get where she got to in in the investigation over the two years. And it actually equated to over 100,000 US dollars. Don't get me wrong, I find it inspirational how passionate she was in her search for justice. I really do. She put everything she had into getting it, and that's amazing because otherwise, you know, there wouldn't have have been any. So I just want to say that I do think what she did was absolutely incredible. She spent her entire life savings to 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 get to where she got to. That money went to the private investigator, probably a lawyer, and to paying police officers to be able to do what they needed to do. Like she said, she had to pay for their fuel to to go places and to question people. But, and here's where my concern is, and this is only my opinion. The fact police were given money from Margaret, that already botches this for me. The second money is exchanged between Margaret and police, this is not only a conflict of interest, but also this could be misconstrued as corruption, bribes, that type of thing. The second thing is about how how did Margaret persuade Evelyn's family to convince Robin Budis to confess? How do I know that he was even there that night? There was no physical evidence and Mike didn't seem to ever point him out as far as I know and say, yeah, 100% Robin Budis was there. Maybe he did, and I just never heard that. And I also never heard if the other two guys who were already in prison corroborated that story and admitted that Robin was there with them that night. Again, maybe that happened, and it just didn't make it into the evidence that I saw. And then I think, what motive would Robin and Evelyn's family have to help Margaret? Do you get where I'm going with this? What could they get out of doing that, turning in a family member, risking that family member going to prison for a long time. But then, you know, it takes this turn and Robin gets off completely free, no charges, no life sentences, like the rest of the people involved got. I mean, we have a mother desperate for answers, willing to spend her life savings on on getting these answers. And we have a family living in poverty that can provide what this mother needs and no physical evidence is needed to solidify the confession. I mean, it just seems like a a compromised situation. In cases like this, if I was a juror to completely convince me of who the guilty people are, I would need cell phone records. I would need conspiring text messages organizing this 
murder. I would need cell triangulation the night of the murder. Did the people in the car, did the people in the apartment, did they have their cell phones on? Can you triangulate them to that area at that time? I need the guns with the with the gunman's fingerprints on them. I need, and you know what? If they can provide those guns with the murderer's fingerprints on them with blood spatter from the victim on that gun, that's going to seal the deal deal for me. That's how I'm going to know these people had these guns pointed at that person because you have evidence of both parties there. I don't know. I just feel like it was all circumstantial evidence and testimonies that could, could, not were, you know, I'm just saying that could possibly, in theory, be bought. I'm not saying they were, mind you, and there's no evidence anyone was paid for a testimony or confession. But I don't agree with the beyond reasonable doubt bit of the the verdict. I'd say there is reasonable doubt. If, if I was a defense lawyer and Evelyn was my client, these are all points that I would would bring up in the court of law. But again, the court says she did it and... I mean, they have a hell of a lot more information than me. They have everything. There's probably evidence that was withheld from 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 the public. So it's possible I'm not not getting everything here. I'm just looking at this from the perspective of a defense lawyer, which again, I've never studied law and I'm not. I'm just I'm just trying to see it from all angles here. No shade on Margaret. She worked hard to get justice and again, that's amazing. She put everything she had into this. Evelyn though, she she did appeal her case saying that the evidence was not beyond reasonable doubt. And still, she claims her innocence. And her appeal was denied and she remains in prison. When she gets out, she will be well into her 60s. I mean, wow. That is a that is just, that situation was just no good for anybody. And I mean, I have a lot of empathy for Stephen's family. I have a lot of empathy for Evelyn's family. Both families suffered greatly from this murder and three mothers lost a child or children evelyn she lost her children she may never see them again evelyn's mother will never see her daughter again and margaret lost stephen so it's just a horrible tragic thing that happened for everybody that concludes this week's episode about a fearless mother who stopped at nothing to put her son's murderers behind bars. Margaret did write and publish a novel on her experience called For the Love of My Son. Before I go, I just want to say you can find Hell No, A True Crime Podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Hell No underscore A True Crime Podcast. If you have a second and you're on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please take a moment to rate the podcast and see you next week. Mm-hmm.